Oh, good morning. You may not like that music, but uh, I think we all like that message. It is a great message about uh, all of us want to be the kind of man that a woman would want to share life with, the kind of man that other men can respect. And what we're talking about here these last couple of uh, weeks and the next couple of weeks in front of us are, is going to be how we can be among that number of few good men. We are glad that you guys are here. You're making your way out early. Let me um, just ask the Lord to be with us this morning, wherever we're at, wherever we come in terms of our development into men that are able to be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, be strong, and in everything we do, let it be done in love. Let me just pray that uh, God would just move us closer to that image of man that he intended, uh, an image of man that will make others look at us and be thankful for the God that created us and for the fact that we are leaders over them. May we be servant leaders. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these guys that uh, are getting up early to come and hang out and uh, be with me here these uh, few weeks as we just reflect on the fact that you've given us an incredible opportunity. You've put us in a position where we can lead, where we can serve, where we can be a source of blessing, and similarly, you've put us in a position where we can cause great devastation, destruction, despair, hopelessness, lostness, and pain. Lord, many of us in this room have experienced many of those things because the men over us were absent or abusive. And we hope that you would break that chain, that you would use the topic that we're speaking of this morning, the truth that we reflect on, the soberness of the facts we'll glance at, to um, help us to be desperate in our pursuit of redemption and faithfulness. So Lord, I know that in this room there are men from every possible experience and uh, in every possible place. And so I would ask that you would do what only you can do, which is to meet us each right where we're at and encourage us and strengthen us, heal us, and help us to um, be focused on truth, truth that will set us free. I thank you for these men, these few that have risen. And I pray from this thousand, fifteen hundred or so men that you would multiply out um, a stream and river of blessing that would be a source of life to others, and we would tell them where that life ultimately comes from, not from us, but from the perfect man that we serve, whose name is Jesus. We thank you for this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to start by reading you a little story that just kind of frames the day, I think. And I'll start just by saying this, you know, not only is it harder today to be a man, I think it's harder today than ever to become a man. We talked about this last week, we talked about the number of different pressures that are um, on us that that get in the way, that that cause confusion. We we talked about how that is the problem, that men today are in a state of confusion and, and we've got to regain the ability to live confident lives. And I talked about how, by confident, I don't mean cocksure, I don't mean arrogant, I don't mean self-reliant. I mean men who can live with faith, confideo, men who understand who they are and how they can be more of those men. And I think it's harder to not just be those men today, I think it's harder to become those men today because of the societal pressures that are out there. We talked about the, the industrial revolution or, or, or the way that we relate to one another in terms of career and workforce. We talked about a societal revolution in terms of uh, gender confusion and, and uh, roles and just uh, an abandonment of certain ethics and laws that whenever you scoff at them, you're going to be in debt to it. 
And then we talked a lot about the fact, and the one that we're going to focus on this morning, that, that one of the biggest hindrances to being a man, to becoming a man today, is that we don't have men teaching men to be men. And many of our role models are broken. We, we talked about how there's, there's two different basic kinds of men, where, where we drift. We become emasculated, and, and as I said last week, I'm going to repeat it again, I said it quickly, guys that don't want to be bad boys, they don't want to mess up, they, they've been told that men are bad and so they want to be good boys, and they're emasculated men, they're apathetic, they're weak, insecure, passive, irresponsible, lazy, afraid of commitment. And on the other end of that spectrum is macho men, men who, who want to prove that they're bad asses. And those guys are really nothing more than frightened men. But they try and walk and talk and fight and cuss and play with women in a way that um, establishes their manhood. And if those are your models, either a weak man or a man that's trying to show he's not weak by acting in a, a, a macho manner, it's hard to grow up to be the kind of man that you want to be. I want to read you this one little story. Just bear with me. It's called What My Father Wore. And I think in this story, it talks about how when you've got a dad who's present, who is an emasculator to macho, he's just, he's just there. Something happens. When my father was uh, around me as a young man, I was often embarrassed. I, I wanted him to dress like a doctor or a lawyer, but on those muggy mornings when he rose before dawn to fry eggs for my mom and me, he just always dressed like my father. We lived in South Texas, and my father wore tattered jeans with the imprint of his pocket knife on the seat. He liked shirts that snapped more than those that button. And he kept his pencils, cigars, glasses, wrenches, and screwdrivers right there in his breast pocket, easy to grab. My father's boots were government issues with steel toes that made them difficult to pull off his feet, which I sometimes did when he returned from repairing air conditioners, his job that also was a source of shame to me. But as a child, I'd crept into his closet, and I would find myself modeling his wardrobe in front of the mirror. My imagination transformed his shirts into the robes of kings and his belts into soldiers' holsters. I slept in his undershirts and relied on the scent of his collars to calm my fear of the dark. Within a few years, though, I started wishing my father would trade his denim for khaki and retire his boots for loafers. I stopped sleeping in his clothes and eventually began dreaming of another father. I blamed the way he dressed for my social failures. When, when boys bullied me, I thought they'd seen my father wearing his cowboy hat but no shirt while he was out walking the dog. I felt that girls snickered at me because they'd glimpsed him mowing the grass and his cutoffs and black boots. The girls' families paid men, and I believe better dressed ones, to landscape their lawns while their fathers took off in boats on the bay wearing lemon-yellow sweaters and expensive sandals. My father only bought two suits in his life. He preferred clothes that allowed him the freedom to shimmy under cars and squeeze behind broken Maytags, where he was always most content and comfortable. But the day before my parents' 20th anniversary, he and I went to Sears, and he tried on all the suits. With each one, he, he stepped to the mirror, he smiled, he nodded, then he asked about the price, and he reached for another. He probably tried 10 different suits on before we drove to a discount store and bought one without so much as approaching a fitting room. That night, my mom said she'd never seen a more handsome man. Later, though, he donned that same suit for my eighth grade awards banquet, and I wish he'd have stayed home. After the ceremony, where I was voted Mr. Citizenship of all things, he lauded my award and my character while changing into a faded red sweater 
He was stepping into the garage to wash a load of laundry when I, when I asked what, even at age 14, quickly struck me as cruel and wrong. Why, I asked. Why, why don't you dress nice like, like all my friends' fathers? He held me with his sad, shocked eyes, and he searched for an answer. Then before he disappeared into the garage and closed the door between us, my father said, I like my clothes. An hour later, my mom stormed into my room, slapped me hard across the face, and called me an ungrateful little twerp, a phrase that echoed in my head until they resumed speaking to me a little bit later that night. In time, of course, they forgave me, and as I matured, I realized that girls avoided me not because of my father, but because of his son. I realized that my mother had slapped me because my father could not. And it soon became clear that what he really said that night was that there were more important things than clothes. He said he couldn't spend a nickel on himself because there were things that he wanted for me. And that night, without another word, my dad said, You're my son. I sacrifice so your life will be better than mine. For my high school graduation, my father arrived in a suit that he and my mother had purchased earlier that day. It was the second suit I ever saw him buy. Some, somehow he seemed taller, more handsome, and posing. And when he passed the other fathers, stepped out of the way. It wasn't because of the suit, of course. It was because of the man. The doctors and the lawyers recognized the confidence in his swagger, the pride in his eyes. And when they approached him, they did so with courtesy and respect. After we returned home, my father replaced that suit in a flimsy Sears garment bag, and I did not see that suit again until his funeral. I don't know what he was wearing when he died, but he was working. So he's in clothes that he liked, and that comforts me. My mother thought of burying him in the suit from Sears, but I convinced her otherwise and soon delivered a pair of old jeans, a flannel shirt, and his boots to the funeral home. On the morning of the services, I used his pocket knife to carve another hole in his belt so it wouldn't droop around my waist. I took the suit from Sears out of his closet and I changed into it. Eventually, I mustered the courage to study myself in his mirror, where with the exception of the suit, I appeared small and insignificant. Again, as in childhood, the clothes draped over my scrawny frame. My, mother's, my, my father's scent wafted up and caressed my face. But it failed to console me. I was uncertain. Not about my father's stature. I stopped being an ungrateful little twerp years before. No, I was uncertain about myself, my own stature. And I stood there for some time facing myself in my father's mirror, weeping and trying to imagine, as I will for the rest of my life, if I'll ever grow into my daddy's clothes. Now, I, you know, I read that, and uh, you could hear <laughs> a few times I wasn't reading it real well. And... Uh, it, it hits me every time when I think about how foolish we are as little boys who are lucky enough to have a dad who's doing the best he can, who is present. And I think it really hits me because now I'm not one of those dads. But I think about my little boys. I think about the way they view me. And I think it really hits me when I walk through this world and I see the number of little boys who don't have dads in suits or jeans, or homes. In 1960, about 11% of American kids grew up without a dad. 30 years later, that number more than doubled. Today, it's increased another 15 or so percent to about a third of the kids in America today grow up without a daddy whose little 
aroma can waft up in front of their nose. A dad who can spend time with them, a dad who is in the house. It's about 24 million kids. You go to the African-American community and that number almost triples. There is a crisis in our country of fatherlessness and the devastation is unspeakable. I know we, we talk a lot about societal revolutions and they are present. And we talk a lot about uh, changes in work conditions and they are real. And we talk a lot about the deconstruction of our society. And we talk a lot about the issues that we face in our society. And I'm going to tell you, I think you can trace it back to this issue as much as any other. When we love on men, disciple men, encourage men here, I cannot tell you how many times we can trace back their struggles to their inability to deal with what we're going to call the father wound. Let's just take a little glimpse at some of the things I've got down for there for you guys to to write down, but if we're going to act like men, we need to know what men are like, and one of the reasons many of us don't know how to become a man today is because there aren't men around us, or there weren't men around us to show us what a real man was. And I talked about how last week that there's an enemy who wants to steal our joy, kill our hope, and destroy our opportunity to live a life of faithfulness, fullness, adventure, greatness, strength, love, and purpose. And real men won't let him, and real men will not let the wounds of their childhood or the wounds of their absent or abusive daddy define who they are. You'll hear me say it a little bit later. If I don't say it, I'm going to say it now. Listen, absent and abusive dads, bad parents are a fact. They are not an excuse. There is none of us that have had a perfect father. My kids don't have a perfect father. And we have to stop, though, hiding behind whatever reality we grew up in whatever broken model was put before us or whatever model we didn't have and we've got to start to ask ourselves can I become a man even though I did not have what God intended to be there and I'm going to tell you today that the answer is a resounding yes but you've got to acknowledge sometimes that a lot of what you're doing is in response to this wound and the confusion that you have in how how to deal with it wounds I defined last week as an unresolved issue whose lack of closure hinders the quality of your life and the reality if you want right there in that first little blank the reality of life in this world is that we all have been disappointed or wounded in ways that that challenge but I wanted to say this it doesn't need to control our ability to live strong healthy and productive lives it will challenge us and, and, and part of, though, healing that wound is acknowledging that it is there. Talking about it. Dealing with it. I, I'll mention again that a confident man is not a man who is um, full of himself. He's full of faith and he lives in truth. A confident man addresses the realities of his past and the responsibilities of his present. And the reality is many of us deal with a real thing called a father wound. It takes courage, next blank, to face these wounds and confidence to believe we can heal them. But it takes nothing to use them as excuses. I believe that there is no wound, as I've already said, as dangerous for or deep in a man's heart as the wound brought about by an absent or abusive daddy. And I'm going to make a case for that sociologically today. 
uh, as I talk about the fact that, um, that it takes nothing to use them as excuses, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite cartoons that I've ever seen that I go back to a lot because, you know, all of us like to find reasons why we're not accountable to be men or why we're not accountable to be responsible or be courageous or to step up in the moment or, or to know how to speak out or know how to stand firm, what it really means to be a great man who stays humble and learns from others continually, a man who lives for something greater than himself, who serves a king that is not, you know, um, identified by who he sees in the mirror. And it's just a picture of two drunks that were leaning up against the wall, holding a brown paper bag, just a little pencil sketch that I saw. And one guy just leaned over to the other guy and said, so enough about me, you tell me where your dad screwed up. And so many of us find ourselves, maybe not homeless or on the street, there are guys in this room who have found themselves there, but many of us have found ourselves, our lives broken and tattered and lacking um, courage and lives that aren't worthy of respect of others or even our own, and, and we want to look at others that are just as miserable and as much failures as ours and go, well, let me tell you why I've got to be here. Why do you have to be here? Instead of rising up and not using it as an excuse, but with confidence, beginning to heal them. Let me just make a comment real quick, because there's a verse that, that is in your scripture that, that causes a lot of confusion to many people. And, and about every, I don't know, decade or so, it, it just comes roaring back with certain people who want to use these verses to explain to you a certain way to deal with this wound. And it's just rooted in a lack of understanding in the scripture. It comes in Exodus chapter 34. And in verses 6 and 7, it says this. It says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him. The him is Moses. And said to him, the Lord, the Lord God, this is who God is. This is who our Father in heaven is. When God made us in his image, when God wanted us to be men who live and lead like he lives and leads, this is what he wanted us to be like. But this is who he is. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who, who, who gives his word and keeps it. Who, who makes covenants and fulfills it. He keeps his loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Yet he's a God of justice. Remember, I talked last night about a shepherd king. I talked about how he is uh, loving and intimate and available, but he is also able to protect and to execute justice and punishment appropriately and when necessary. And it says that God's like this. It says, he by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. But then it goes on and says this last little bit, and it's really what I want to focus on just for a second, where it says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. And there's a lot of people that are going to tell you, is that, look, I'm a victim of what my, my, my father, my grandfather, my, my great-grandfather did, if you, if you pull it out through a number of generations. And, and what this is saying here is that there is no limit. This, it's not saying that because your dad was something, you have to be something. Because your grandfather was that, you need to figure out what grandpa's addictions and practices were and expel that demon, that, that, that family um, you know, trait that is in you and you can't do anything about it through some spiritual formula. Otherwise, you're going to be just like your daddy because, hey, God judges the third and fourth generation from an idiot. Let me just tell you, you can't support that biblically. Exodus um, cannot be read in isolation. And even if you did, there's another explanation I'm going to give to you that, that makes complete sense. But God says that, that the sins of a father will not be specifically 
held against the son. The sins of the son are not going to be held against the father. In other words, each man must give an account of himself before God. So what is going on in Exodus 34? What God is saying is, look, man is a whisper. Man is here for a while and then he's gone. Man's impact and his ability to influence is limited. But mine is not, and nothing will keep me from being the God that I said that I'm going to be. Your, your grandfather's, the rebellion, it's fleeting. It's like the green herb. It fades quickly like the grass. Now, there's no question that man's influence is strong and real, but it is not, it is not something that you are bound to just because you saw it. God says there is something that is constant, there is something that will always exist, and there is somebody who is loving and gracious and kind and slow to anger. And, and who is filled with compassion that is always there, and it is him. What this little verse is simply saying is this. It's a fact that, that when grandpa's a racist, he's going to make your daddy a racist through the way that he teaches and leads. You might have grown up in a racist home, but you don't have to be a racist. And in about you know, 60, 70 years, grandpa's gone. You might have grown up in a home that objectified women. You might have grown up in a home that dealt with problems by drinking. You might have grown up in a home that dealt with problems by leaving the problems. And so you didn't even have a dad in your home. That doesn't mean that that is the curse that you have to be a victim to. Because it's been modeled for you, you might want to run there. But God says here in this passage, how about run into something else? How about breaking the chain? And if there's anything that is clear in Scripture, it is that God has a heart for those without fathers. Dozens of verses talk about His love for us and desire to father the fatherless. It's a fact that that kids learn from things that they hear, and it's even a greater fact that Kids learn from what they see. That's, that's the next thing I kind of wrote down there for you. Kids may fail to do what we say, but they rarely fail to do what we do. Kids love their dads. Even when they're not there, they're impacted by them. That little proverb 17.6 where it says, Grandchildren are the crown of old men. In other words, boy, you've got a grandson. It's, like a, it's, it's what makes you a king. You love them. You delight in them. I, I last night was... Sitting there holding my, my youngest boy, he's, he's eight, he's, he's quickly gone towards nine, and we were sitting there on that couch, literally, for an hour and a half, two hours, tickling, punching, wrestling, having a good time, laughing. The other two were uh, small groups that were out, so I had some good time alone with him. And I just, I thought, you know, there's certain things I'd always do with my kids. I would, when they'd get them out of the shower, I would, I would roll them up in a towel, and I did this, you know, until I, I couldn't do it anymore, and I'm, I'm at the very end of that with my eight-year-old. Where we just call it a hot dog. You probably call it what you want. I'd roll them up. I'd take both ends and I'd dry them off, you know, just like this. And I mean, I'd do it, you know, until my back couldn't do it anymore. And they loved it. And I thought, I, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I think I've given already my last bath. I had six kids. My, my baths are gone. I'm real close to have given my last hot dog if I haven't already. And I can't wait. I, I literally thought last night doing this. To myself, with my boy, I can't wait till I get to do it all over again, you know, with a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old. But these days are gone quickly for me. But even more than how granddads love their grandchildren, it says here, and the glory of sons is their fathers. In other words, 
what, what, what grandchildren are to granddads, dads are to sons. It's their source of pride. It's their source of joy. It's their source of gladness. But when your source of gladness is abusive or your source of gladness is gone, that leaves a wound. I just encourage you just to sit down, you, you know, and, and I'd encourage you to share this with other men. If you're not already in a group of other men, we're going to give you a chance to connect with some other men here. Please do that. Process with other guys. One of the things that's important to do is just, when you think of your dad, what, what are the first three things that you think about? There's a blank there for you to write that down. Well, when you think of your dad, you might go, I never knew my dad. I might think, when I think of my dad, I think of gone. I think of unfaithful. I think of weak. I think of lecherous. I think of alcoholic. I think of cruel. Or you might be blessed. You might think of words like loving, faithful, reliable. What are the words you think of when you think of your dad? I'm going to show you a little clip from a movie. It's um, uh, a movie called Warrior. You might have seen it. It came out recently. It's kind of a modern-day Rocky using MMA to tell a story, but it's not just a story like Rocky where a nobody becomes a great winner. It's a story about a daddy who had, um, in his own brokenness, not been a faithful father in his relationship with his sons. And, and I'm just going to tell you, at the point in the movie where we're going to pick it up, it's, it's a dad with a son that um, had come back to him, and um, the dad at one point, when the kid was younger, had taught him how to wrestle, and it was a fantastic wrestler and so when he got back in mma and he wanted to really make a run of something he went back to his dad and he said i'm not coming back to you because you're my dad i'm coming back to you because you're the best coach i ever had but just know this you're never going to be my dad you've already walked out on that opportunity and this very strong gifted macho man is really sure how much he doesn't need his daddy but no matter how much he wants to just leave him as coach you can see the wound on him Watch this. You can trust me. I understand. You spare me the compassion of father routine, Pop. The suit don't fit. Tommy, I'm really trying here. You're trying? Yeah, I'm really trying. Now? Where were you when it mattered? I, I needed this guy back when I was a kid. I don't need you now. You no, know, it's too late now. Everything has already happened. <laughs> Look at you. Yeah. I was right. I think I liked you better when you were a drunk. And not like now, tiptoeing around as a beggar with your cup out. Take it somewhere else tonight. In fact, you know what? Here's a cup. Why don't you take this and you go back to the room and you listen to some more fish stories and get out of here. And the reason there's some jumps in there and it went black is because there was some other dialogue that we don't need this morning. But do you remember what he said? He said, listen, I needed you when I was a little boy, but I don't need you now. That's just not true. You were created to have a model, somebody that you could pursue. And there's a wound there if it wasn't there. And there's a little bit of woundedness in all of us. There are some things that are in me that, that I'm handing down to my kids that are not slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and compassionate and gracious that they've got to overcome. And their dad's imperfection are, are not an excuse. And so all of us have got a little bit of this wound. 
Let's just walk through some things real quickly, though. The absent or abusive father always invites lostness and lack of direction. Proverbs um, 6, 20-23, it talks about this. It says, My son, observe the commandment of your father. Don't forsake the teaching of your mother. Find, uh, bind them continually on your heart. Tie them uh, around your neck. And if daddy is there to teach them to you, there's going to be a lostness. Remember last week we talked about the fact that where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. They go every which direction. There's a sense of lostness. I don't know what to be. There is um, anger and pain that comes with an absent or abusive father. I mentioned last week some of the guys that um, have affected society in the last number of years, and even um, women that you know who have had tremendous effects in our society. Many of them, all of them have had absent or abusive fathers. Stalin's dad abused him and beat him. Madeline Murray O'Hare hated her father. She tried to kill him with a butcher knife. Freud had a weak and no surprisingly perverted father. Hitler had an abusive dad who, who died when he was 14. Nietzsche had a weak and sickly father. On and on I could go. Scriptures tell us as dads that we've got to be careful to not provoke our kids to anger, to not exasperate them. And we can exasperate them by, by taking away from them something that they need or by being present and providing for them something that they don't. Absent and abusive daddies are responsible for homosexuality and other forms of extreme behavior. Let me just run off some statistics for you here. I've got down here 63% of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. That number's up. It's close to probably now to 75%. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 70% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles and state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 70% of adolescent murderers come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youths sitting in prison grew up in fatherless homes. In fact, the leading indicator of future criminal behavior is the lack of a present and loving father. And what we're doing is we're kicking against the goads. We're, we're trying to say we don't need dads. Men aren't important. Our roles are insignificant. Just go make money. Just go chase your dreams. Go be satisfied in some other way. And you will never be satisfied. Let me just tell you this. I don't care what I do, what you think of me, what others think of me, where they want me to come speak. No man, I believe, ever rises above the opinion of his children. Folks that know you best, if my kids hate me, disrespect me, there is no way I could ever build up enough affirmation other places to deal with that wound in my own heart. Because I know that you don't really know me. And I'm not really a man if the people that know me best don't think I'm a man. When you think about what all these statistics means, it means that children from a fatherless home are five times more likely to kill themselves, 32 times more likely to run away, 20 time, more times to, to have uh, behavioral disorders, 14 more times to commit rape, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 10 times more likely to abuse chemical substances, nine times more likely to end up in a state-operated institution, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. 
You know, and I think about the choices that we're making right now. One of my favorite little things I've ever read is by a guy named Edgar Rest. I'm going to read it to you now. He says, I've known a number of wealthy men who were not successes as fathers. They made money rapidly. Their factories were marvels of organization. Their money investments were sound and made with excellent judgment. Their contributions to public service were useful and willingly made. All this took time and thought. At the finish, there was a fortune on one hand and then a worthless and dissolute son on the other. You ever seen that in Dallas? Maybe not with factories but with mutual funds, real estate empires, banks, businesses that were great successes, but home wasn't so much of a success. Why? Edgar Guest writes, because too much time was spent in making money implies too little time spent with the boy. When these children were youngsters romping on the floor, if someone had come to any one of those fathers and offered him a million dollars for his lad, he would have spurned the offer and kicked the proposal right out the door. Had someone offered him $10 million in cash for the privilege of making a drunkard out of his son, the answer would have been the same. Had someone offered to buy from him for a fortune, the privilege of playing with that boy, of going on picnics and fishing trips and outings and being with him every part of the day, he would have refused the property position without giving a second thought yet that is exactly the bargain those men made and which many men are still making they're coining their lives into fortunes and automobile factories and great industries but their boys are growing up as they may these men probably will succeed in business but they will be failures as fathers to me it seems that a little less industry and a little more comradeship with a boy is more desirable not so much me in the bank and more of me and of my best in the lad. That is what I should like to have to show at the end of my career. I just wrote a note underneath that, that too many men today agree philosophically with Edgar Guest, but practically, they never implement the truths of it. Practically, kids never experience a relationship with a kind of father who philosophically agrees with Edgar Guest. Some of you have been those kids. And there is a deep wound and pain in your life. Let me just walk you through for a second what I believe every son wants and needs from his father. A a buddy of mine said that the best thing he ever heard about parenting was this little phrase. It was a sign that he saw in his friend's house and it just said this, parenting must be present to win. I think that's pretty good. The very first thing that that you've got to to give, what your kids want, is time. Kids spell love T-I-M-E. They don't spell it T-O-Y-S. I can remember I was working with youth in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in America, and I asked them, this question, I was asking a series of questions, and this one wasn't even in there to discover this truth, but, but in this area where I always heard them complain that they didn't have what other kids had, when I asked all these kids this question, how many of you would rather have your parents give you anything that you wanted or to spend an evening with just you? I was shocked, because I, I was talking to high school kids. I knew they wanted a Porsche. I knew they wanted a Range Rover. I knew they wanted a, a, a nice car. I knew they wanted um, some toy at the lake, and there wasn't a single one that chose the toy. And some of them had no relationship with the dad, and they're saying, I'd love an evening if my dad was not just with me, but was with me. Time. 
And I will just say this to you. I do like that statement that parenting, you must be present to win. And, and, and I will tell you that being present is half the battle. But note this, it is only half the battle. You, you cannot be physically there and emotionally absent. What kids really want is a close, positive, affirming, engaged relationship. Where you're connecting with them. And where you're modeling for them what it means to be a man. In fact, I'd make the case that if, if what you're doing uh, when you're with them is not what you ought to be doing, then your presence is really nothing more than reinforcing a bad pattern. And kids may fail to do what you say, but they will not fail to do what you do. So, time. Being present is half the battle, but let's not stop there because it's only half the battle. The second thing kids need is leadership. Leadership they can respect. Ask yourself, am I the man that I want my kid to be? And if you're not, the very first thing you can do is acknowledge what you're not and begin to pursue that radically and let your child understand, listen, these are areas where I am not fulfilling what I want to be as a man and show them what a man does about that. He doesn't cower. He doesn't quit. He doesn't run away. He doesn't hide. He steps up. And he becomes a man. He learns. He gets around other men. When he makes mistakes, he owns his mistakes. He confesses. He acknowledges. He tells his son that he's made poor decisions for the last 20 years. And he doesn't swear that he's going to change forever. He just starts changing. I've said this so many times. One of the greatest ways I lead my kids is when I don't lead them well, I stop. And I go, let's just stop for a second. What you just saw right there is not what a man does. That was not excellent leadership. That was not appropriate leadership. It was childish and foolish. And it created pain in you, insecurity in our home, a lack of peace. And I need to own that, acknowledge that, ask forgiveness, make amends, and restore trust. Kids need time. They need leadership. They need direction and solid answers. The one right underneath that is they need someone to explain why, not just tell them what. Someone who can walk them through the complicated issues in life. You know, when they asked um, a bunch of young gals specifically if they could talk to their dad about serious issues, only 4% said they could. And what they did when they dealt with significant emotional crisis in their life is they'd listen to music, number one, talk to peers, number two, talk, uh, watch TV, number three, which, in case you haven't noticed lately, is not a bastion of wealth and good direction. Mama shows up at 31, and the 48th thing on their list that they would do at a time of crisis or confusion is talk to dad. I talked a lot about boys. Girls are disproportionately more likely to be sexually active in a home where dad is not fully engaged. Doctors have studied and tell you that girls are ushered into puberty earlier when dad is not present. Which creates all kinds of problems, to say the least. What, what we need as young men, what we need as men is time, we need leadership, we need direction, we need somebody not to tell us what to do, but why to do it, to train us up in the way of righteousness, that we would know the moral why, not just the moral what. Kids need that. Kids need a dad's heart. They need to know that their dad is there for them and cares for them, loves them, believes in them. If I could have you write down three words 
that every kid needs. I'd have you write down these three words. Attention. Affirmation. And affection. There is no blank for those. But it's what defines a dad's heart. Time, presence, you're there for me, you're important, you matter. Affirmation, you've got what it takes, you're good enough, strong enough, I'm proud of you, I'm ready to walk with you through life and help you be exactly what you're supposed to be. And affection, appropriate physical touch. Love. Pats on the back, hugs, embraces. And I know you think your 16-year-old boy, 18-year-old boy doesn't need it. I know you think your 13-year-old boy doesn't need it. And by the way, if they haven't had it until they're 14, it's tough for you to walk back up and say you want to be close. It's tough when they're 23. But they still want it. And you've got to fight through that huge gulf of broken relationship that's there with you and your son or there with you and your dad if it's there. But they want it. I would just encourage every one of you to, to go back... We uh, are doing this thing here on Tuesday nights with our young men and young women called Restricted with JP. It's outstanding. The whole series is fantastic. But there's one message in there specifically. A gentleman by the name of Ricky Chalette came and spoke. And um, Ricky has come from a background himself with an absent and abusive father. And it, the issues that it led to in his life included a lot of extreme behavior. Ricky talks as well about this as anybody that I've ever seen. It was on February 7th, 2012. Go to watermark.org media, hit the media tab, and spend 50 minutes understanding a lot about how we get to be hardwired in our sexual identity, but not just about our sexual identity, about the wound that is there. He does a tremendous job, and he talks about these three things as well as anybody. The need for attention, affirmation, and affection. You know, when kids listen to the way you talk about them and when you have a, a need to validate who you are by their performance on the football field or, or, or to be societally acceptable in their behavior, I want to just tell you that kids rarely, rarely question their parents' expectations. Instead, what they do is they question their personal inadequacy. And they, and they start to really shrink back and they go, I'm not a man unless I do these things, unless I perform these ways. And that leads to all kinds of issues in our life. So how do we address the wounds and the issues that are created by an absent or abusive daddy? Let me just give you a few things real quickly. We're going to watch one more little video and then we're going to be out of here on time. Number one, first thing you've got to do when there's a wound, you've got to acknowledge that it's there. And you've got to refuse to be defined by it. Don't make it your excuse to check out or be abusive yourself. Break the change. Acknowledge it is there. Refuse to be defined by it. Secondly, You've got to choose to believe in God's justice. Scripture after scripture talks about how God is the father to the fatherless, defender of widows, is a God to those who don't have what God intended them to have. And you've got to believe that God is going to take care of abusive dads. And some of you guys had awful fathers. I mean, significantly abusive fathers probably themselves abused and in fact that hurt people hurt people but but it's been well said that a lack of forgiveness and bitterness towards somebody else it's like drinking poison and expecting them to die 
God says that He is the avenger of those things. He calls us to offer forgiveness. He calls us to seek to reconcile the way that He is reconciled with us. And He says if people don't want to reconcile, if they don't want to acknowledge the pain and the abuse and the, the abandonment that they were involved in, in a way that God said they shouldn't abandon, God says, I will take care of that. Very clearly in Timothy, he talks about the fact that a man that does not care and provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. And if you haven't paid attention lately, God does not take kindly to unbelievers. God knows all about your abuse of an angry father. And you've got to choose to believe in his justice and in kindness and grace. You've got to want to help them be freed up from their own disappointment and discouragement and their offense against God and their offense against you. Choose to believe in God's justice and model God's forgiveness. That's the next one. Choose to forgive your dad as your heavenly father has offered forgiveness to you. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 10 even says this. It says, listen man, your dad's disciplined as best as they knew how. And some of our dads did not know how. But you can live in that anger or you can begin to move towards your daddy. That's the next one. Choose to reconcile with your dad. Take the risk of asking for your father's love. That's the next blank. Now, gang, I know I'm writing these things down, and this is a mountain of work. But if you're here and you just go, I don't even know, I don't even begin to know how to move back to my dad. Some of you, your dad is gone. He's dead. He's not around. We can talk with you about how we handle that with other men in terms of even communicating in your own heart, writing a letter to your dad that he may never be able to read because he's gone, or you may never be able to let him read because he's who knows where. But take the risk of moving back towards your dad, of acknowledging that you were designed to have a father in your life. Risk asking for your father's love. Accept, gang, the love of the father of the fatherless. Accept the love of your heavenly father that he's been wanting to give you. Stop the cycle that talks about it. And we talked about at the very beginning. Break the chain of abuse and abandonment. Courageously reclaim the relationship you missed and relentlessly provide the presence for your child that he or she needs. Date your daughter. Encourage your son. Be a present father. Don't swear it's going to change forever. Just start changing. Don't leave here today when you say, I need help. I don't know the first thing to do. We want to help. There are men here that love you and want to come alongside of you and disciple you and encourage you. Let me let you watch one short video. I'm going to comment and we're going to close and be out here just like I said. But take the risk. Watch this. Well, men, one of the things that loving fathers do is they, they write notes. You know, I when my kids were real little, I, I, I thought I'd come up with something stupid and corny that um, I would always write at the end of everything I ever put to them. And so... You know, mine was uh, just Iggy Meyer, Iggy Mick, or Iggy Mick with, with a K, whatever their deal was. And they know what it stands for. It stands for, I'm glad you're my Coop. I'm glad you're my Alley. I'm glad you're my Landry. So we've got an Iggy Mill, an Iggy Mick, an Iggy Meyer. I just always put it there. I want to let them know, I'm glad you're mine. I'm proud to be your dad. I love you. I write them notes. I'm present. I'm there before them trying to model and trying to teach them their value, their dignity, their worth, and their future. See, loving fathers always leave notes. They always model for you your 
your great worth. There's a note. And it's His Word. And He's telling you, I love you. He wants you to read it. His eyes are open. And He's saying to you, I love you this much. He didn't just write a letter. He lived it before you. He gave Himself for you. Guys, I want to just tell you something. You've got a daddy. You've got a perfect father. For my kids, it's not Todd Wagner. And for you, it's not your daddy. It's their heavenly father. We need to extend a lot of grace to our earthly fathers. And as earthly fathers, we need to not hide behind grace. But we need to run to the gracious one and learn his ways. And if you're here this morning and you've never learned to forgive because you've never been forgiven, that's the first thing you've got to do with this wound, man. And you get around other men that by God's grace have learned a little bit about what it means to be the kind of man that God says he wants other men to be, the guy, a man he wants you to be, a man of dignity and glory, and just raise your hand and just say, will you just come alongside of me? I didn't have a dad. I didn't have a discipler. I didn't have a vision. I don't care if you're 80. It's not too late. One of the quickest ways to heal that wound is to be the dad that walks back into the wound you create and say, let me help you clean that thing up because it's there and you might have buried it deep and the man doesn't blink but the little boy still cries and I love you this much. But you can't do that until you're first loved greatly. We want to help you. We want to serve you. We want to keep working through our wounds and we want to keep learning how to be men. We're going to have groups to help you. We've got men right here to lead you. Father, I pray for our friends in this room. Our hearts are heavy. We want to leave. We want to go get our kids out of school and hug them and kiss them. But I pray we would just sit down and write them notes to give them when they get home and lay in their bed or send their lunch to school tomorrow. Maybe we'd go meet him for lunch today. Maybe we'd just spend some time with you and the note that you've written to us so we can learn what it means to be a man. And certainly, whatever we do, we don't want to do it alone. We've got to raise our hand and say, Father, will you help me love as much as you've loved? Will you forgive me for the way that I haven't? Will you restore me to you so that I can be restored into the image of a man that you intended? We thank you for grace. We thank you for this chance to respond, to break the chain, to improve our future. And to be a, a present, affirming, attentive, affectionate daddy. May we be those men by your grace. Amen. See you guys next Thursday. Don't leave. We'd love to talk to you if we can help you. All right? Take care. We'll see you.